Welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today, Michael and I are talking with Neil Hadaway. Neil is a senior research fellow at the Stockholm Environment Institute in Stockholm. Uh, he works on various projects, including evidence synthesis and systematic literature reviews in environmental and development topics. Neil has a PhD in conservation biology. Um, and since 2012, he's really been focusing a lot of his efforts on systematic literature reviews and evidence synthesis and environmental management. Neil's really the leading expert in this area, and he has a lot of good advice for, for all of us who are looking to do literature reviews out there. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, yeah, so my PhD uh, was in conservation um, biology, freshwater conservation. Um, I, I previously did a, a master's in marine environmental protection at Bangor University and then moved to Leeds University in the UK, uh, where I studied um, endang endangered crayfish in the UK um, and its conservation in relation to invasion biology and parasitology, so quite a diverse set of subjects. Um, and when I finished my PhD, I moved back to Wales to do a brief postdoc for a year in um, biogeochemistry and community ecology that had field work out in Qatar in the Middle East. Um, and uh, that was just a, a one-year postdoc. And I managed to jump departments within the same university, which is handy because I had a mortgage. Um, so I had bills to pay. But I actually ended up working at the Centre for Evidence-Based Conservation with Andrew Pullin. Um, in, uh, in Bangor, but in a different department. Um, and it, he established the um, Collaboration for Environmental Evidence back in 2008 and kind of pioneered systematic review methods in conservation biology um, from the early, uh, early noughties. Um, and working with him was, was really, uh, really interesting. I managed to have experiences working on three different systematic reviews um, over my time with him, but also worked closely with DEFRA, um, looking at different types of evidence review, rapid evidence assessments and scoping, uh, quick scoping reviews as well. So looking at differences in methodology. Um, and it was then that I got really interested in, in systematic reviews uh, and systematic mapping in particular as, um, as methodologies. Uh, and after that, I moved to Sweden in 2014 and started to work for the Mistra EBM uh, project, which is conducting systematic reviews and maps in uh, environmental management topics that were relevant to Sweden. Um, and I was doing that until 2018. Um, and since 2018, I've been working on my own projects in various different things, um, looking at poverty, at uh, sustainable development, at energy transitions, and increasingly more into climate change. But over the last couple of years, I've got really interested in evidence synthesis technology. So that's that's really where my main interest is now, using technology to make systematic reviews as efficient and transparent and rigorous as possible. Yeah, what type of technology is that exactly when you when you say technology? So it's really anything. Um, there, there are groups that are looking at automation of systematic reviews. And while that is part of the evidence synthesis technology, for me, um, technology is in relation to evidence synthesis is broader than that as well. It includes anything that really helps increase transparency or accessibility. So um, one of the main technologies that's being developed is review management tools or review management software. And I think there are somewhere in the order of 25 to 30 different uh, software platforms for managing systematic reviews. Um, wow, and just that's that a lot. Kind, yeah, that's, it's a load. And there's a lot that's... Um, completely replicated and redundant there as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, some of them do quite different things. Some of them have machine learning built into them so that you can speed up screening. Um, some of them really focus on uh, transparency and recording every step of the, the process. But mainly their, um, their aim is to uh, increase the uh, standard of documentation and store all of your kind of records and um, information about the searching every step of a systematic review um, and to help you work in a team remotely as well. Um, basically, that's at one end and then you've got people working in Excel and printing papers off at the other end. So there's lots of stuff in between, but um, really technology is any kind of tool that's being used uh, to make systematic reviews a little bit easier. Yeah, so within the spectrum of those 25, like what is there really one which is considered the gold standard or is for, for doing systematic reviews or is there like pretty big heterogeneity of the value of those different 25? Or are they all trying to do similar things? They all, they all are trying to do similar things. There's some tailoring that means that, for example, if you're doing a systematic review according to CE guidelines, the Collaboration for Environmental Evidence, then Kidema is the tool that's been developed for specifically the CE guidelines. Then there's Revman, which has been developed for um, uh, Cochrane-style systematic reviews, um, along with Covidence and a couple of others that are built around healthcare reviews. But um, largely, they're all kind of doing similar things. Some of them just do part of the process, so they focus just on screening or just on meta-analysis. Um, we actually did a review uh, in 2017 that was published in January 2018 on, the, I think we had 20, 21 or 23 different tools. Um, it was uh, Emma McIntosh who did that systematic review. Um, so it gets a bit meta, you do a systematic review of systematic review management software. But um, they, they all do slightly different things. There, there are a couple that are very good, but then you have to pay for them. So um, there's, there's pros and cons of all of them. Yeah, what is the spectrum? You said there are some in the medical field. You know, are we talking really about developing a unified methodology across disciplines, or do you see like a variation in the methodologies between, for example, the medical field or conservation biology? I mean, essentially, the methods are uh, identical. Um, there are certain things that mean the type of evidence you're dealing with um, could be more or less heterogeneic. Um, so heterogeneous. So in healthcare. For Cochrane reviews, at least, which are uh, systematic reviews of healthcare interventions, um, they pr- predominantly only deal with uh, randomised control trials. So the the type of appraisal tools, the type of screening and searching, is quite tailored towards that. Um, but when you start looking more at public health or environmental health, uh, the type of studies. Uh, starts to get quite broad. You start to include um, things like observational trials uh, or observational studies. Um, and you start getting quite messy studies combining different types of, of uh, studies as well. So really the difference there is there is no difference between disciplines. Everybody's trying to do the same framework. Um, and the methods that you use are essentially identical. Stefan, can I jump in here? Yeah. Um, so Neil, I think it'd be helpful also to take a step back and just, I'd like to ask you, like what is the motivation for this kind of methodology for systematic reviews? Like what was the initial motivation to set up the center? I think that maybe that's obvious, but I still think it's helpful to like 
think about the problems that these are addressing. I was noticing you've got this paper from last year with this really tantalizing title, Open Synthesis and the Need for Evidence Synthesis to Embrace Open Science, which has got a lot of, you know, interesting keywords in there. Um, like what initially got you excited about uh, tackling this and how did you feel like it was uh, maybe addressing a gap in current practice? So I, I think the, the main thing that attracted me to systematic reviews w was that you have this a priori method that you develop in advance and you try to ensure that every step of the way you've planned exactly what you're going to do so that when it comes to actually doing it, it's very easy to or in theory, it's easy to enact exactly what you planned. There's always mm -hmm. things that crop up. But um, I tried to do that a bit with my PhD. I tried to kind of set up these registered reports before I really knew about registered reports. I did my PhD in 2007. Um, and I, I, that kind of idea of planning everything in advance so that when you conducted it, it should all go to plan really appealed to me. And it also um, appealed to my interest in trying to make publication a bit fairer and that turning away studies from a journal based on their findings not being interesting enough just mm -hmm. seems wrong and it, it is fundamentally wrong it causes publication bias as we know um so, so that, i'm sorry neil can you tell us what a register report is so i'm sure i think folks won't know exactly what that is yeah sure so i think registered reporting started in the field of psychology but um the center for open science now is is um sort of pushing registered reports um, and the community who are interested in, in open science uh, um, are really spreading spreading the word about this. It, it's starting to be taken up by a lot of journals. The idea is that you plan your methods for your study in advance. Right. You publish that uh, in a registry. And then if you fail to publish or fail to finish your study, it at least has been registered so that someone can identify which studies have been conducted even if they can't find the results and mm. the reason that's important is because um, publication bias and bias that we have ourselves as researchers means that often if we find a non-significant result or a negative result or one that's difficult to explain or if the experiment fails in, in our understanding of what failure is then um, it's it's normal for that research not to be published. Right. Um, but those non-significant or negative results could be really important. They could be really valid. Because we've not found them, it means that what we find in the, the broader literature is most likely going to be an overestimate of what the actual effect of an intervention or an exposure is. So without those uh, kind of negative studies, we, we get the wrong picture. Um, and this is what's really uh, important with systematic reviews as well, that you you identify exactly the steps that you're going to take before you conduct your review um, so that you don't have mission creep, you don't end up including studies based on their findings, you just include them based on, on whether the methodology was relevant to you. Um, and it, every step of the, the way with a systematic review, the methods are designed to reduce bias and reduce sources of confounding coming in and changing your result. Um, so it's all about protecting your review from rigor, uh, from uh, outside undue influence, basically, to, to make it as rigorous as possible. So is this, um, you kind of need a multi-pronged approach here, uh, if I'm understanding. I mean, so if you have a systematic review can only go so far if you have 
underlying publication bias because you're you need to have like a good population of published studies to work with right or am i misunderstanding that yeah so what you tend to find with traditional literature reviews is they they only look in the published literature and that means that they are probably overestimating the the size of the effect right um so what what we do in systematic reviews what's really important is to both look for different types of gray literature and there's there's two main types of gray literature there is the um the gray literature that was never intended for an academic audience so organizational reports white papers government reports consultancy reports that kind of thing that could be really valid but hasn't been through the academic publishing um pathway and then there's uh literature which was intended to be academic but never got published perhaps it's a phd thesis that never got published or perhaps it's papers that people chose not to publish or didn't get through editorial triage because it's uh, non-significant or negative so you can combat publication bias by looking for that what we call file draw research that stuff that should have been published but wasn't right um and then uh because even doing that doesn't necessarily mean that you've eliminated bias we try to look for evidence of publication bias in the synthesis. And you can do that in meta-analysis by um, statistically testing for publication bias or um, by plotting um, funnel plots and looking for the evidence of potential bias. Right. Do you think it would be um, a good idea to have, I mean, this is, I think, probably not a good idea, but it, it almost makes me think that we need like a journal that's just set up for like so-called negative results or whatever we're calling them. Or like a whole article type, right? So in environmental studies journals, you got you can do like case studies, you can do um, research reports, et cetera. And so it'd be interesting if there was like a section where it's like, hey, do you have like a so-called negative result? Like this is the, we have a whole section of this journal. It's like just for those things to kind of change the in publication incentive structure slash norms because it's not always about like the formal rules, right? Like a lot of this is about informal norms that guide our behavior day in day out. Yeah, so I, I actually remember my 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 dad is uh, or was a radio um, a nuclear physicist, so he worked with um, medical imaging, and he he used to publish, and he told me about a journal of negative results uh, maybe 20, oh. 25 years ago. So I'm I'm sure there was one in the field of healthcare because they recognised that there was this publication bias. But what's right. what's actually happening now is that when you publish a registered report, when you publish your intention to conduct a study and in the field of healthcare they have um, clinical trials registers where if you're funded then you're obliged to register in, in certain countries you're obliged to register the fact that you're intending to conduct a trial oh, um, sure, okay. and in doing so um, when you publish a registered report if you do that in a journal the journal is then obliged to publish your study irrespective of the findings so there are journals in conservation and um, environmental science and ecology that that do this now. If your if your registered report is accepted, then they will publish your review, provided you haven't deviated from that protocol. And that means that they'll publish it irrespective of whether it's positive or negative or difficult to explain. Right. That's very interesting. Mm. And that seems like a good step, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's really aiming to to get rid of this publication bias. Um, and there's been some really interesting research um, by the Center for Open Science that has um, that seems to suggest that registered reports eliminate that publication bias or go a long way to reduce it. 
Do you have a good understanding or has there been any studies which show how strong that bias is in any fields? Yeah, it's really well studied in psychology. Um, I, I would be grasping numbers out of the air, but something, something like 60 to 70% of, um, of research is not published. I think something, something like that. There's the, a huge amount of research that is, is negative, isn't published. So what we're seeing is an overestimate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. What do you, uh, one thing I've, I was thinking about before this was, you know, you see a lot of papers, which are literature reviews, et cetera, and they don't really have an explicit methodology. I mean, I assume this is also part of your motivation for, for doing systematic approach, but you know, what is the current state of the literature? Maybe you can t- say it within a specific field like conservation biology, if you're more familiar with that, but you know, what is kind of the balance between those who are trying to take systematic methods seriously uh, versus literature reviews, which you see, which uh, do not, or they're not trying to think more in depthly about the methodology. Yeah, it, unfortunately, the state of, of play isn't great. Um, so the, the vast majority of literature reviews are not remotely transparent. There's an increase in the awareness of systematic reviews. So if you look at the, the number of systematic reviews published per year in the field of conservation and environment, it is increasing um, exponentially as people become more aware of systematic reviews. But one of the problems is that people throw that word around without really knowing what it entails. So you do see systematic reviews with no transparent reporting of the methodology, um, which is fundamentally wrong. You, you can't do a systematic review and not really report the methods. But um, in terms of, of what things look like, um, there is a project um, underway by the Collaboration for Environmental Evidence at the moment called uh, CEDA, which is the, the CE database of evidence reviews where they are critically appraising all um, evidence reviews in the field of ecology and environmental management that aim to test the effectiveness of an intervention or the impact of an exposure. Um, and they they generally show that most reviews are very poor on the reporting, um, but they also fail on a number of other um different criteria so this database is going to be making it a lot clearer for for people who find a literature review and aren't sure whether it's it's rigorous and reliable or not mm-hmm. you have to send us some of those links and we can put them in the the notes for this show so those yeah, we'll those do. who are interested can can find some of the resources definitely you want to jump in michael no um i mean I would love to talk more about publication bias, but I don't know how far down that road we want to go. <laughs> I could talk about that for hours, so maybe not. Well, uh, I mean, so what, you know, there's been this big hullabaloo about it. I mean, as you mentioned, within psychology, um, had this kind of reproducibility crisis. Um, you know, I think a lot of us are generally aware that it, it can't really be limited to psychology, that a lot of the the norms and formal incentives that are within that science are shared by other parts of academia. Um, the, one question I have is, you know, kind of the the big boogeyman for a lot of this is our p-values and the whole p-hacking um, exercise, which um, I certainly I think is a problem. I mean, I, I think there's. I quote this now, so I hope it's correct. There's this um, research out that like looked at the distribution of p-values across a whole bunch of studies and found that they cluster like just below 0.05, um, which seems like fair evidence for some strategic p-hacking to kind of get below this arbitrary threshold. Mm. And so one one thought I've had is it, it 
I guess two questions is, you know, how much of a culprit is this kind of methodology? It's kind of essentially a go pulse methodology, right? Where we kind of encourage this video game approach to science where the truth is based on your high score. Um, and so we might have AIC values, we might have R squares, we might have P values. Um, and what, what people are told is they need to find the model that maximizes these criteria as opposed to maybe the model that actually they thought was most theoretically likely to begin with, um, which gets into the whole issue of, you know, how theoretically informed are our analyses or are we kind of, or is, or is what we call theory really amounting to common sense as, as, as much as some of us have common sense. Um, so there's a question here somewhere. Um, so I guess the question is, do you, how much do you think it's based on the particular methods that we use, particularly in quantitative science? Do you think it's broader than that? If we change those things, are we getting around, are we, are we really addressing it or is it, is it more fundamental than just how we're doing science right now in terms of the, the analytical methods? I mean, I have to caveat this by saying I'm, I'm not a statistician. I've, I've done meta-analyses and my PhD was quite heavy in statistics, but I, I'm definitely not an expert. But um, from I can say from, a, from an evidence synthesis perspective that um, by, by having a registered report for a study, you're already committing yourself to do a certain set of analyses. So it, it right. really attempts to prevent p-hacking. Um, and it, it tends to avoid multiplicity of p-values. All, all the, the nice things that could happen unintentionally or nasty things that could happen unintentionally by being nice um, and the things that can happen by, by being um, deliberately subversive. But um, So the idea is that by, um, by planning your method in advance, the primary studies are then forced to stick to a certain set of analyses and not data mine. Um, right. And so I think that's one way that, that we're going forwards in that respect. There's been a recent study that showed that actually even registered reports don't necessarily reduce those kind of uh, occurrences because people quite often don't stick to their protocols. So there's another right. need there to ensure that, to enforce people uh, sticking to their protocols. And uh, there's ways that we can improve that. Um, by sort of streamlining how we how we write protocols and how we compare them and this modular way of, of writing uh, research up in very static PDFs I think is is just a real problem that needs to change anyway. Oh, that's a whole new conversation for us. And to that have. might help. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of a typical. It's it's one of the governance problems that we that we face. Right? Is is um, standardization versus flexibility. Yeah. Um, how we want everyone to abide by these formal um, rules that they're setting for themselves about what their behavior will be, but then it's to some extent understandable if someone deviates from that just you know a bit. Presumably, there's going to be at least a little deviation because things happen, right? The whole things happen explanation. Yeah. And so, how do you strike this balance? Where, but if if you know, it's it's this issue where some. Um, a basic, uh, trivially acceptable principle, like, hey, we need flexibility, is then used to um, justify a lot of behavior that we actually don't want to let in the door, right? right. So people will say, hey, we need to be flexible, things are gonna happen, but it's like, okay, but then if we just accept that, then suddenly anything can happen, and so how do you have these conflicting principles, and how do you find that balance? 
I mean, that's not quite a fair question, but it's it because I don't know if there's like an e there's no easy answer to that. No, and I mean we face this problem in systematic reviews as well that people need to declare um, if they deviated from their protocol. Ideally, they don't deviate from their protocol, their registered report for a systematic review. But if they do, then it should just be clearly stated what they have done, and they should uh, justify. So it's the justification that's really important. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, you need to be a methodology expert in some um, instances to be able to know whether what they're saying is is relevant or not. There was a recent case with a systematic review um, that actually didn't have a protocol that was published. Um, I forget the journal now. Um, but they caveated a lot of their methodology with um, what looked like really good justification. And as a methodology expert, their justification was terrible. I, I can say that. But it really looked like it was. So there's, there's another risk that um, just being aware of the limitations of substandard uh, methods doesn't mean that people are going to avoid them. It might just be that the excuses become better. So um, I think as, as kind of um, talk about it with um, with colleagues as being uh, a kind of combination of a stick and a carrot in that um, some of this is forcing people to obey certain rules and best practices, but some of it is really trying to entice them to do it voluntarily because the stick will cause people to cover up their mistakes and their limitations and the carrot will really try and drive them towards doing better. And different people are better and different communities are, are better than others sometimes as well. But um, I, I like to think of it as a kind of a bit of a pointy carrot. Um, about, <laughs> thinking about incentives to get people to do better science and um, when we do training in systematic reviews we do try to get people to think about uh, the end point where they've done their literature review and then they wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat because they realize they've missed some studies or they've done something that they shouldn't have and by writing their protocol and having it peer-reviewed and having it commented by the public um, having stakeholders involved uh, conducting it to rigorous standards and then reporting it in detail means that their science can just sit there on its own and defend itself. They don't have to worry about that. And I, I think those kind of incentives that they don't have to worry about defending themselves are a really powerful, um, especially in the, the, the kind of uh, context of being a scientist and having to defend our research against peer reviewers. We, get, we are generally quite defensive um, in some instances because of that sort of kind of anonymous attack on our um on things that are really important to us um these science projects that we do so um i think some of it is just incentivizing people in different ways um and trying to understand why people use limited methodology um but it, it's definitely uh it's not just a stick and it's not just a carrot it's a pointy carrot, carrot. i mean it's really interesting there's some there's i think some fairly profound observations about human behavior in, implicit in that. I mean, the, the idea that when people feel attacked or feel defensive, that's when they, um, sometimes we can get, we kind of hide and, and are less transparent and can get more strategic because we're trying to figure out a way to maybe not get in trouble in some kind of vague way in our minds. And so it's kind of how do you change people's behavior without making them defensive? And also, you know, I think something that can happen here as well is when you're trying to implement some new policies, there can be a kind of us versus them mentality where there's, and, and again, it gets maybe back to this distinction between like flexibility versus standardization. Um, 
even that framing, I think, can be socially tricky, right? Whenever you have like a A versus B, I, I have my own, this is not my own, I'm sure. I, I imagine many people have thought of this. But whenever you kind of phrase something as one something versus something else, I, I worry that it kind of taps into that module in our brain that's ready to think about one group versus another. Right, so you have the standardizers and then you have the flexibilizers or whatever it is, right? And so you, suddenly the conversation gets taken over by these kind of group dynamics. Um, yeah, and I, I think the, the, the thing we often forget is that we all are trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to uh, understand the world and make it a better place. And right. people take different approaches to do that, but it's all coming from the same desire generally. Um, so we're all I, in the same group in a way. Yeah, and I, I think I mean, we, we face this when we try to get people to improve the methodology for their systematic reviews, that one approach can be just to respond to individual systematic reviews that use substandard methods and to kind of police the term systematic review. And that is a very negative, sticky side of the argument. Um, and trying to improve um, the awareness of journal editors and peer reviewers to what makes a review good. Um, you, you kind of risk alienating them if you tell them that they should be doing a better job because, you know, they're really busy, they're struggling right. to manage workloads and get people interested in peer reviewing. So I think a lot of it comes around trying to incentivize people by telling them that you can make their lives easier and their work more robust. I think that's really where the evidence synthesis community has a role to play that it so far hasn't necessarily engaged with very well, but we should be making people's lives easier um, in doing these reviews. We, it shouldn't just be about making the science more rigorous. It should also be about making that change towards rigorous synthesis and open synthesis as easy as possible. And that's where this technology side really appeals to me because, you know, if you've got this checklist of items that people have to check off when they're reporting a systematic review or reporting a primary study, if you can automate that process, so instead of having someone go through a checklist and manually record each part of their document that covers the relevant information, and normally you do that at the submission stage as well, if you can just let people do that automatically by dragging and dropping a file and it recognizing the text that refers to different um, parts of the checklist, then you know, you're making people's lives easier, you're improving the quality of their science, and these things are within our grasp. So that's really why I'm very interested in technology. Mm, yeah, one of the things I, I was interested in and it might be useful for, for listeners is to, to actually walk us through how you think about approaching doing a systematic review. What are, what are the steps, um, if, you, if you want to say or call it a step, along the way methodologically for how you would approach or think of like kind of the gold standard of, of, of reviews and then this kind of it, when you explained the the biases in the literature sample itself, what it made me think. Then, what are the biases that go along with the methodological process of the review? And then maybe going through those steps can help think about the, some of the biases that occur along the way. Yeah, sure. So, um, so the methodological approach that that we use is um, the same as the approach that's endorsed by the Collaboration for Environmental Evidence. The same as Cochrane and for Campbell. Um, it's kind of standard approach for a systematic review. There are subtle differences between a quantitative review and a qualitative review. Um, so what I'll say will be most broadly relevant to quantitative uh, evidence synthesis where you're, um, you're collating quantitative research articles. Um, and 
the the key steps are, are the planning step, which is really important, where you're uh, consulting with um, stakeholders to see whether the scope um, is right, whether the question elements are right, whether you whether your definitions are broadly agreed on, um, and whether stakeholders can suggest sources of evidence. Um, and then you would write a protocol that outlines the planned method for the whole process, get that peer reviewed, have public comments by your stakeholder group, uh, maybe broadly across the, um, the broader science community as well. Um, once you get those comments back and you revise your protocol, the next step is to search for evidence and you search across multiple databases, you search for gray literature. Um, once you've got your big body of evidence, uh, you then remove duplicates because there'll be duplicates between databases um, and you screen it at title and abstract, then at full text level, um, kind of filtering out going in an inverse pyramid down to this body of evidence that you know is relevant at full text level. Then once you've got this body of uh, full texts, you need to extract data from them, descriptive information about the studies, but also the study findings, uh, and critically appraise the studies for their internal and external validity. So the internal validity is how well um, the study uh, did what it was supposed to do from a methodology perspective, how well it measured what it was setting out to measure. And the external validity is, validity is how well that study matches onto your review question. You might have differences in spatial scale or slight differences in intervention that mean that it, one study is more relevant than another. Um, and then following on from that critical appraisal, you use that, that judgment of studies, which studies are better or more valid for your review uh, in your synthesis, uh, where you combine the study findings to look at what the overall effect is um, or to, so there are two approaches. One is kind of aggregating similar studies to see what, the, what an average effect is. And the other approach is a configurative synthesis where you're trying to understand what factors affect a relationship. Um, and then once you finish your synthesis, you write it up, get that peer reviewed, and then the important kind of communication and tailoring uh, messages part of the review. Um, and that's the general approach. There are subtle differences depending on whether you're doing a systematic review or a systematic map. So systematic maps are generally broader in topic, but shallower. So they're, they're looking at larger bodies of evidence across lots of different interventions, lots of different populations. But um, they don't generally conduct the critical appraisal step or synthesize study findings. They're just asking what evidence exists and what does it look like. Um, and then, as I said before, there's subtle differences if you're doing qualitative synthesis as well that you might um, be wanting to understand um, by combining qualitative studies. You might be wanting to understand how people have defined a specific concept or what models have been used to explain a particular intervention interacting with its environment. Um, yeah, but, but those are the broad um, kind of methods necessary. And the, the protocol the stepwise screening um, and critical appraisal and using the critical appraisal outputs in synthesis, those are the really important parts that you can't skip. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to jump back for one thing on uh, related to the databases. How, how do you think about choosing which databases are going to be relevant? I mean, this will be, this will be different between, between disciplines. But when I think about it, I think, well, I'm going to go to some of the big ones first, uh, things like Scopus or to Web of Knowledge. Um, and then maybe you could say, what is the what are the benefits and downsides of of Google Scholar as a search platform? Yeah, sure. Um, 
So there are hundreds and hundreds of different databases. Some of them are more general and broader, and some of them are more specific, either specific for subject areas, geography, languages, date ranges. Um, and so you normally want to have a blend of both, have the broad ones and the narrow ones. No one database covers the whole of uh, research evidence. Um, in our experience, the Web of Science core collections, which is the, the main uh, group of databases or indexes that uh, Web of Science um, sells, um, might be about 30 to 50% of the evidence in a systematic review, but even that is probably like your go-to general, very big database, and it's still only covering a very small percentage in some reviews. So you do need a range. Sometimes we have between like 10 and 20 different databases. There are some systematic reviews that I've seen that have used 75, I think is the largest different databases. Wow. Um, and it, it's this is where it's really important to speak to an informatician or a, a library a librarian or an information specialist. And all universities have them, all uh, university libraries have people who are dedicated to doing systematic review searches for healthcare systematic reviews generally. And they're, they're incredibly well-versed in which databases to use, what syntax to use in different databases. Um, loads of like nuanced stuff that you would never think about. Um, like, so Web of Knowledge doesn't exist anymore. It became Web of Science in 2014. Um, people often say they searched Web of Science, but Web of Science isn't a database. It's a platform that you use to access different databases. Um, the database within Web of Science that most people are talking about is Web of Science Core Collection, and that itself consists of a suite of different indexes that have different date ranges, and your institution might subscribe to different indexes and different databases than my institution. So we can find different, like sometimes maybe two, three times more evidence in one institution's subscription than another. So it's really important to be specific and know what you're doing and where you're searching. And this is where librarians are really important. Mm -hmm. um, going on to the question about um, Google Scholar, Google Scholar has been shown to uh, be really great at identifying specific evidence. So if you have an article and you want to find it, generally it will be in Google Scholar. It has the biggest coverage of any database. Um, as far as studies have shown, although it's, it's very difficult to, um, to, to actually study that. Um, but when it comes to using Google Scholar in a, a systematic review, Google Scholar will never be a standalone resource that covers everything. The reason is Google has a really um, well-hidden, powerful algorithm that orders and ranks um, your search results. Google Scholar will only ever show you the first 1,000 search results. You can't see any more than that. Um, and you have to use third-party software to um, download those first 1,000, uh, something like Publish or Perish, um, that allow you to download citations. Um, so the problem is, if you search in Google Scholar and I search in Google Scholar, we might find different things. Right. Um, you can't download everything. So it's, it's really powerful, but it's non-transparent. Um, and not repeatable. So those are two of the central tenets of systematic reviews, which mean that Google Scholar can be used in systematic reviews, but only ever as an additional resource to back up those many um, databases and other forms of searching. Uh, Google Scholar just 
sits on the top as an extra um, insurance to make sure that you've captured everything. And we, right. we've shown in a study that I published uh, with some colleagues from DEFRA, I think back in 2015, that Google Scholar is really great at finding gray literature across lots of different organizations. But you have to look in um, maybe 20 pages through the search results or so to actually find that gray literature. So you do need to look at everything you're, you're seeing, but it, it's only an additional resource. Yeah, how much bias is the algorithm in Google Scholar creating in the results, do you know? I mean, you're saying... Yeah, but I think you kind of, at least my personal experience, you feel like it's learning what you want to find uh, specifically to the the field that you work in because you constantly search similar similar topics, similar papers, et cetera. Is there a yeah. way, like if you log out of your account, for example, and then, and then Google search or Google Scholar search uh, without logging in, does it, how big of a difference are you going to see there? Supposedly, Google Scholar does not remember things as well as Google does. So Google learns based on your your previous search history uh, and your IP address. So what other people on your IP address are, are searching for as well. Mm. So if you sit next to me in my institution, you search for crayfish and click on the first result uh, or the second result, it will push that result up my search result um, list when I search for the same thing. Um, Google Scholar won't do that in the same way but we still don't really know how repeatable it is. Um, people, so far in the testing that I've seen, it doesn't seem to be learning within a system and between systems on the same IP address. But um, there are small differences every now and then that make you wonder. Um, so it's very difficult to tell because that algorithm is completely hidden and you can't export large numbers of search results. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. How com how comprehensive is Scopus? Um, I think it's a little bit bigger than um, Web of Science core collections. Um, it, you have the op the option of including things like newspaper articles and um, editorials. So it it um, catalogs, it indexes slightly different stuff. Um, but normally Scopus and Web of Science core collections would be the two main large databases that we search. Um, and in environmental sciences, we'd also try and search um, cab abstracts as well, uh, which is great for forestry and um, agriculture, amongst other things. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are those are the kind of two or three big ones. Yeah, it makes me think about open access because a lot of the literature searches that I do, you come with just a lot of articles are behind a paywall, depending on what your institutional arrangement is. Um, yeah. But I imagine pushing an open access agenda is something that systematic literature review would be benefiting from because you're getting more access. You know, how how do you deal with those those access issues in your reviews? So we we have two layers of of open access, and and one of them, it's not actually open access. It's uh, what we call open discovery. Um, so open access is the uh, the idea that you should be able to read articles for free, so you pay at points of publication rather than um, paying to read, although some journals are free to publish as well as free to read. Um, but the So that's one issue that um, back in 2015, I think, there was um, some research that showed that only about 4% of conservation research was open access. That's much better now. Um, but it does mean that people in... Uh, resource constrained context can't easily 
uh, read a lot of the research that they want to read that they find. Um, but another layer, this um, this first layer of, of access that's a problem is open discovery, where a lot of the databases that you use to uh, search and discover, uh, search for and discover evidence um, are paywalled themselves. So web of science is incredibly expensive, so is Scopus. Um, there are very few uh, free resources, although um, they are getting better. Microsoft Academic uh, Graph is one. Um, there's the Directory of Open Access Journals. There are a couple of other free resources. I think Agris and Agricola are um, agricultural-specific databases that are free. Um, but there's no, um, yeah, I mean, if you can only use free resources, you're probably cutting out a large number of really important databases. So, mm -hmm. so there's two layers. If you don't have funding, that there is a real problem, and we're we're trying to kind of highlight that and and find ways around it. But it's uh, it's a real challenge, partly because abstracts are actually copywritten. So um, PubMed, which is the biggest uh, database in in healthcare, is free to access, free to search. So that's open discovery. Um, but they have a very special relationship with publishers that means that they can um, they can index abstracts even though they're copywritten. Mm -hmm. um, so if you wanted to replicate Web of Science core collections, for example, you you would uh, have to be very careful not to just publish the abstracts. Mm -hmm. Michael, you want to jump in? Yeah, um, Neil, what role does do language barriers play in all this? Yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, it's something that I know um, a couple of people are looking into with systematic reviews. Um, ideally, with a systematic review, you search for and screen in multiple languages. Um, okay. Often people have constrained resources, so they, they do restrict themselves to English, but that's not ideal. Um, in the systematic reviews that we did for Mistra um, EVM, which was focused on Swedish contexts, we uh, we had resources to both search for and translate um, evidence that we found in uh, the Nordic languages. Uh, Russian was always a problem. Um, Chinese is an increasing problem because the, the volume of Chinese literature is increasing faster than um, a lot of other language um, evidence bases. Right. Um, so it... It kind of depends on what resources you've got, who you can have in your team. But if you're building a team, it's always a good idea to try and find a, a relevant review team member who represents a, a language. Um, to some extent, um, these databases actually index research in English. So they translate the titles and the abstracts into English, even though the article might not be in English. Um, and text translation tools are getting getting better uh, all the time, so that that might help to bring that barrier down in the future. But um, yeah, it it is a problem, um, specifically if you're working um, in anything that's to Latin America or um, or North America, so Canada, um, because um, Spanish language journals are um, are quite popular. A lot of evidence by consultancies is published in in French in Canada, for example. Right. Um, so you do risk missing. Um, quite a bit if you only restrict yourself to English, which which isn't ideal. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, recruiting folks, I mean, the translation, tech, I mean, it gets back to like technology, right? If that can be improved, um, it's kind of tempting to think that that could solve it or at least address it better. Yeah, um, I mean, 
I did a systematic map back in 2014, 13 and 14, um, and we found quite a lot of um, Chinese literature, and I used Google Translate um, on the Chinese PDFs, uh, and it worked well enough to be able to extract descriptive information. Okay. Um, so, I mean, that, those kind of tools often help you get some of the way. Um, I can imagine you might worry about, like, not knowing what you don't know, right? Like, is this exactly. actually correct? I actually have no way to validate my inferences here. Yeah. <clears throat> so in, in the field of healthcare, they have something called uh, the Cochrane Task Exchange, where if you have uh, articles in a language that you can't translate, you can put up a, a call for, for voluntary assistance, and people will help you. Um, so it, someone who speaks Chinese can translate an article for you if you find yeah. it. Um, yeah. I, I think that's something to work towards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Neil, I'm interested in uh, the Roses project. Yeah. Can you say a few things about that? Yeah, sure. So um, back in 2017, um, the editor-in-chief of um, the journal Environmental Evidence, which is CE's journal, um, asked uh, a colleague and I, Biliana Matsura and I, to... Um, to look into setting up some a checklist of minimum standards uh, for reporting for systematic reviews, um, and we we reviewed what was available at the time, um, and we were well aware of Prisma that um, worked in the field of healthcare, um, but it wasn't really well um, suited to environmental evidence. It focused very much on quantitative evidence um, synthesis, so it, uh, systematic maps and qualitative. Um, synthesis weren't really appropriate, but it also talked very specifically about healthcare style reviews. So we uh, we adapted Prisma and pulled in a lot of um, additional information and re um, requirements that were stipulated in the, the guidelines for systematic reviews uh, that CE, Cochrane and Campbell had published. Um, and we produced ROSES forms that help people to ensure that they've got all the relevant information that should be in their protocol and their final report for both maps and systematic reviews. Um, and it, along with just being a checklist of, yes, I've included that information, um, it also acts as a, a source of information, like descriptive metadata, basically. So in this form, you describe the methods that you've used to some degree so that it really makes it easier for editors and peer reviewers to uh, check the methods that you've used. Uh, and to see that you've reported everything necessary. Mm -hmm. So it's really like a, a checklist that um, before submission, you just um, you make sure you've filled in, and then in editorial triage, they can just make sure that all that information is there that the peer reviewers need. So is, is there an active effort to get different journals to adopt this as mandatory? Yeah, so at the moment, we've got Nature Climate Change, Environmental Evidence, and Environment International that um, either enforce or endorse uh, roses. Nature climate change kind of enforces it, environmental evidence enforces it, and Environment International allows you to choose whether you want to use Prisma or roses. Mm -hmm. um, we've got another a number of other journals who are who are thinking about um, bringing it in, um, and we're thinking about trying to adapt resources to make uh, peer reviewers' lives easier. Like I said, so you can kind of have this drag and drop automatic roses checklist mm -hmm. um, facility. Yeah, what are some of the difficulties in talking with editors? What is their hesitation to adopt this? I mean, one of the most common things is that they're, they're often being asked by people to use their checklist. There are loads of different checklists, and they're kind of 
inundated with them for different types of studies, whether they're primary or secondary studies. Um, and uh, so asking them to adopt one more thing is just maybe a little bit too much for them. Um, a lot of editors are also working voluntarily, so the thought of integrating something new into their workflows is pretty daunting. Um, and they already know that peer review is difficult to find, um, and so asking them to do one more thing, as well as peer reviewing, but um, checking this this form, is uh, isn't always very attractive. So. I think some of those fears aren't really justified and some of them really are. Um, so some of them are points for us to work on um, to help them integrate these workflows. Um, we've got we've got sort of some ideas of how to do that. But um, yeah, trying to make their lives easier rather than making it harder. Mm -hmm. I think cool. Yeah, I was just thinking this idea, we were talking earlier about the static PDFs and this this idea that once you you finish the review it's it's a it's static in time and it kind of stops let's say in 2017 when you stopped and how, have you guys put much thought into having kind of continuously updated reviews uh, maybe this links more to different formats for publication of systematic review results where every year it's kind of feeding automatically um, through the search algorithm into into a data set which is updating uh, the research questions and, and the data right, related to the research questions on a particular topic is that something yeah, so that's that's happening? This, this, yeah, this is being um, really uh, closely looked into by the Living Evidence Network, which works in the field of healthcare predominantly. predominantly. So mm. they are currently producing living systematic reviews, which have uh, regular search updates every time a new article is published. It's then fed into an update of the systematic review. Um, there are a lot of... Uh, challenges around that uh, related to um, feeding through the evidence to people who are continuously available to then look at it. Um, uh, there's also issues around um, statistics. So if you're repeating a meta-analysis every time a new study is produced, then you're, you run into trouble of, of repeating um, analyses and multiplicity of p-values. So the jury's kind of out a little bit exactly how to manage that process, but people are really looking into it and trying to uh, trying to solve those those problems. And um, I don't think we're far off having that that issue solved. Um, but on top of that, we're looking at um, at doing that automatically with systematic maps. So we have a project at the moment where we're we're hoping to update a systematic map automatically once we've finished. Um, and that will happen by automating the searches and then using the all of the information that we've um, we've collected by screening these tens of thousands of titles and abstracts and full texts. We can then feed that into a machine so that we can use machine learning to predict which of the new articles will be relevant. Mm -hmm. And you can have a kind of unverified database of additional studies that can go into this systematic map database. And that's conceptually easier than repeating a systematic review because you don't have to worry about extracting complex study findings and critically appraising them and then synthesizing. In a systematic map, you're just cataloging data or ca cataloging studies. So yeah, it's, it's being done and I, I think we're, we're not far away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what if, if in, whoever is listening and, or if I want to go and do a new review, what are, what are some of the first places I should go for resources? 
if you're working in the field of environment or in um, conservation, then definitely check out the uh, Collaboration for Environmental Evidence website, which is um, environmentalevidence.org. There's loads of free resources there. Um, so uh, CE is a, a not-for-profit charitable organization that's set up with the purpose of raising awareness and improving standards in evidence synthesis. So its purpose is just to make people's lives easier, really. Um, and there's guidance and minimum standards in how to conduct systematic reviews. Um, they also link to training in how to do systematic reviews, which we run regularly. Um, there should be online courses available either in the field of environment or in, in healthcare, and the methods are the same. So largely you can, you can apply them across disciplines. Um, and then reaching out to the community um, in the, the collaboration for environmental evidence and people who are developing methodology um, either in the field of environment or in the related field of um, social policy, um, international, de international development, education, um, uh, and, and those kind of areas are, are governed by the Campbell Collaboration, which is a, a social policy version of um, the collaboration for environmental evidence. Mm -hmm. So reaching out to those communities is really the, the first step. Okay, great. Michael, you have any que other questions? Um, yes, I do, but uh, I don't want to take up too much of Neil's time. Yeah, I think I might have to go actually. All right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, Neil, uh, thanks a lot. It's a, uh, wow. I think I learned a lot on this. Um, do you want to to help people where they can find stuff about your work specifically or where they can find you on Twitter, for example. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm Neil Hadaway, uh, on Twitter. Um, if you want to know more about the evidence synthesis hackathon, which we've not talked about, um, but if you're interested, then, um, eshackathon.org, uh, you can find out about that community of, uh, software programmers and evidence synthesis methodologists who are, producing new technologies and frameworks for evidence synthesis. That's really exciting. Um, and uh, yeah, I've already said the collaboration for environmental evidence. Um, and check out the systematic reviews that we've done at the Stockholm Environment Institute for more information as well. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod. Or you can visit our website, www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. We want to provide content on the podcast that all of you want to hear. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. Again, thank you for supporting the podcast.